Um, now's the chance to to list I'll just say Kirsten and I've been we're, we're playing with the question to ask at this point um, but we thought the question might be useful what it, what is possible or what examples what is possible for meaning and purpose in regards arising in regards to the environment what is possible what did you find was possible from your own experience? What kind of meaning or purpose or what, or what um, you found arising? And this is also the idea as, as an environmental chaplain, you're going to be evoking or working with other people in terms of their meaning and purpose arising. So any examples or ideas of possibility Okay. Um, so I actually just did a 24-hour solo trip in nature last week and it's, it's really fresh with me. Um, and what really struck me about it and actually what I ended up talking with my partner around, around possibility and purpose was um, the sort of the way that we strive and the, the way that I think particularly in the kind of Western scholastic system we're taught to strive. And I feel like sitting in nature when I was sitting with this question of what is mine to do, uh, which I've been sitting with a lot, um, I was really struck that what was mine to do could not be invented by me. It could only be offered to me. And that uh, there was a surrender involved that I felt like just sitting there and, um, and being in nature was... That lesson was so inherent to... Yeah, to sitting in that. So I just wanted to offer that. An antidote... An antidote to the, the, the striving. To the habit. striving, to the idea that we can make things happen in this very yeah. sort of controlling, control. strategic fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very much an antidote to patriarchy in that way for me. Mm. That's really beautiful. And it, it fits with uh, what the feeling that's coming to me is that aging, as I age, and the culmination of practice is kind of being called back to the the world of nature and being called to uh, that purpose of being in nature and seeing what emerges and also um, just, you know, literally at some point going back to the soil. But uh, it just, it feels also like, in a way, that's the way, pra- that's where practice is leading. It's leading to this reconnection with... Uh, the source of life and being in this world instead of doing that you were talking about striving. Yeah, I, I so much related to what you said about surrender. Um, when I did this chronology of my life, I realized that um, after a very 
um, how would you say, disrupted childhood where we moved 20 times before I was 16. Um, and there had been much, very little connection to the natural world. That it was really when I was at college that I lived in a sort of, well, at Wellesley, which it was a garden of a kind, um, and that I started observing. And just by being there, walking, surrounded by constant change um, in the natural setting, I was listening so much more and, and observing so much more. And so then I, in looking at the rest of my life, I saw that that was what began to happen, was that I just tuned in more and more to where I was, what was taking place, and I sought those experiences. Um, and it was a practice of listening. And that's the surrender you know, to being with, to being receptive, um, to being in an exchange, which then has become a fundamental part of the work I do. Um, and, and it made me realize in a project I'm working on right now that we're calling for within a curriculum at the university I work at, we're calling for within a New Earth conversation, we're calling for listening in nature to be a central part of the experience of undergraduates. And so there are people, I'm sure many people here that I would love to seek wisdom as to what those practices should be in the listening in nature component. I'm struck by how stymied I was by this exercise and how I arrived at purposelessness and meaninglessness. And I've been sitting with this question, kind of looking at the end of the Anthropocene as to what happens to human consciousness when we become disidentified with our human form. And I'm amazed when I see younger people who seem to have this recognition that the striving in which I was born into, kind of late baby boomer, early Gen X, that I was supposed to do something. And I'm grieving tremendously and really leaning into how do I celebrate this meaninglessness, this purposeless life. And you're, I'm, I'm seeing that as a life of just being. Is that kind of what you're pointing toward? Or... Could you say more about the meaninglessness and purposelessness? Because there's, a, I think, a, a very positive side to that and a potentially negative side to that. So what, what's your experience of that? Well, seeking not to judge with negative, positive, good, mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. I kind of lean into 
Martin Prechtel's grief and praise in the sense of as I grieve the lack of an individualized self that has any effectiveness in the vast expression of Laniakea, there's a freedom that emerges, an innate joy, a vastness, and it's really brittle right now. I I noticed when you were speaking you know, some, some quality in your voice, in your eyes that I think indicated a similar experience. This kind of fragility to our being. And so, yeah, I think there's, there's kind of a, for lack of a better term, an ego death to this question. Yeah. And recognition of the futility of trying to be a human being. I'm going to be a human being, a good human being, and I'm going to be, you know, humankind's supposed to be both, blah, 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 you know. Well, I just wanted to reflect that when I looked at the periods of life what I noticed was childhood that there were a lot of unstructured, sort of un-goal-directed experiences of nature, just being outside. And what some of my friends have called like a free-range childhood, where you're not being like driven everywhere, but you just head out on Saturday morning and you're back whenever. (laughs) Um, And then early adulthood, more um, organized trips with friends or, or work experiences where I was out in nature commuting. And so having a goal, a place to go, and doing some running where then you have, you know, you're measuring your distances and you've got a little bit of a competitive thing against yourself, if no one else. Um, and then in later years, just doing more hikes, but having tapered that off partly due to being busy or health problems. So, but wanting to maybe reconnect more to the childhood years than to the early adulthood, which was more driven with, you know, goals and, mm-hmm. and getting somewhere. A free-range adult. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Thank you. We have a, a few, a couple more minutes. I was um, tempted to speak because of the word fragility that you put out there, and in my experience, it's the fragility and the vulnerability um, that has created the openness wherein the beauty floods in. I'm so grateful for this exercise. Um, It was really powerful to witness and remember how the earth has always been with me um, in ways I didn't remember 
Um, and I'm thinking about seeds. Someone share with me that seeds have the past, present, and future in them. Um, and I'm thinking of being with Kyle, um, with Wendy Johnson from Green Gulch, um, at Mirs at Mir Beach, um, and her sharing with us the lineage of the salmon and the genetic memory of the salmon to return to always return home. And I'm wondering what is in the way um, in the design of environments abstracted from the earth and these systems of oppression that we're living in, the psychology of that oppression um, and the design that is separating us from our genetic memory of purpose. Um, that we do, I think, we have, there have been people, we all have, our ancestors lived um, in purpose with the earth, and the earth was better because of us. Um, so I'm wondering what needs to be recuperated for us to be able to listen again to that memory. Just going off of that, I was reminded, because I was there when Wendy Johnson was uh, speaking to, to us and a few others at Green Gulch Farm and Muir Beach at the estuary where the, the stream meets the, the ocean. And uh, she told us that the salmon can uh, taste the river that they were born in and that they were born upstream, you know, in the little freshwater pool. They'll grow up and go to the sea, spend years at sea, and then they'll, they'll know which tiny little stream to go back up of, through tasting the water. And so I wonder how we can... Someone earlier was talking about um, sen sensorial diagnosis and how we can um, just sense how we're doing and what's going on. And I wonder how we can also attune to our senses to taste our meaning. Find our way home. One, one more, and then we'll, we'll be done with it. Yeah. I guess that, that's helpful. I mean, when I first heard in the outline of this day, or the possible thing of what eco-chaplaincy Buddhist eco-chaplaincy might be, and I heard helping people find meaning and purpose. And I thought, uh-oh, you know, I don't get it. Um, it uh, uh, maybe, okay, maybe this isn't, like, uh, it's not something that uh, I would engage in if that, because I, what I associated with having, helping people find meaning and purpose is from something back a while in practice in life before so much practice maybe it's here so it's helpful to hear and lovely to hear different people using those words in different ways where it's like oh sort of what it's come to and out in nature and otherwise is like there is no meaning there is no purpose but not in a like oh, there's no meaning and that the, then it's like, well, something's moving here. Something's flowing. It's more like that. Where is it? it and it's just more like something like love. Um, so, so anyway, it's just put out there, maybe not fair as the last comment, but just this thing, that, okay, if, we're, if this is a day to start investigating what a Buddhist 
eco-chaplaincy might look like, this building block that's put out there of meaning and helping people find meaning and purpose, well, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> and it sounds like people have already, I mean, I'm very grateful that people have brought that into question, like what does yeah. that actually mean? <laughs> or what would it look like? Yeah. Or would, Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, meaninglessness is the advanced practice. <laughs> but th- thank you all for, for, your, for your participation, your patience in listening, your engagement. And, um, you know, if you want to take these with you and play with them more, please, please do. Yeah, Carla, thank you so much. And I can feel how we're deepening together now um, and all that's been coming up and uh, so appreciative of this and of all of you. And we're going to break for lunch. And I had asked Lisa if you'd be willing to lead us um, to uh, offer a meal blessing. Are you still willing? Thank you. Um, And just to, you know, uh, in the in the first session, a few people had uh, brought up gardening and seeds and different ways of connecting, of reconnecting with more than human, and certainly uh, food and eating is a really big part of that. So um, we wanted to actually create a bit of ceremony around sharing food together. Um, and I believe we'll go out and circle around the table together but do you want to add yeah Yeah. so a couple of things um when you uh uh, some people here are familiar with imc and there are tucked away uh, folding tables and chairs and they can be brought out and set up in the outer hall if people want to eat inside it's also very nice to bring them outside on the parking lot and sit around there under the redwood tree or the oak trees or out in the deck or you're welcome to take chairs and tables outside um, and um, <clears throat> and then uh, we're all in this together, and uh, one of the things that means is that somehow we have to clean up after lunch. <clears throat> and so the, all the dishes and silverware and the pots and the food and everything, and if we eat in here, sweeping the floor needs to be done and putting the chairs back and all that. So um, if uh, some, I think if everyone does, did it, it's too many, but if no one does it, it's too few. <clears throat> So hopefully that somehow uh, those of you who have time and inspiration and whatever, uh, that will all happen somehow organically. And then um, the the meal was made by Jessica Escobedo, who's a resident at our retreat center down in Santa Cruz. And it was her love and inspiration to offer this for this, for this group. And uh, she worked yesterday to make the meal. This is a soup and... Um, <clears throat> simple, it's soup and a salad and bread and some vegan brownies. And uh, there's both <clears throat> uh, sourdough bread and also uh, gluten-free bread bread on the table. So hopefully that's enough to sustain you for the, the afternoon. And, um, and then I also want to say that this uh, uh, day is sponsored by our, uh, the Sati Center, not for IMC, Sati Center for Buddhist Studies, and that's who uh, uh, offers the chaplaincy program that we have here, the year-long chaplaincy program. 
And one of the things that's in the back of my mind in doing this day is do we want to do something like a year-long training in Buddhist environmental chaplaincy? Like now we have this year-long regular Buddhist chaplaincy training. So I'm listening and wondering, and it's in kind of in my mind, this idea. And, um, and then um, everything that's offered by, pretty much everything's offered by Sati Center, certainly everything offered by IMC is offered freely, and that's kind of the spirit of generosity that's offered here. And in the spirit of the mutuality of it all, if you would like to then support Sati Center, um, there's a donate, donation box by the door, <clears throat> and uh, it has a slot, and it says Sati Center. If you write checks, write it out to Sati Center. And that'll be used to uh, support this event here today and to further this work with uh, environmental chaplain- chaplaincy. So thank you all very much. So we'll gather around the table. I have one little thing. I um, Up on the chairs there, uh, I brought my library of 